one of my students recently came to me because she wanted to have Socrates' quotation, the unexamined life is not worth living, tattooed onto her body somewhere. Um, And she wanted the original Greek so she could take it to the tattoo artist. So somewhere there's a student walking around with um, the unexamined life is not worth living, hot anexatastos bios ou biotos anthropoi, tattooed somewhere. I don't know whether it was her leg or her ankle or somewhere, and I didn't inquire. And it was interesting to me that she wanted it in Greek and not in English. She presumably wanted anyone who looked at that not to understand it instantaneously, but to think, oh, this is a classical motto or this is somehow erudite or a bit eccentric or something like that. This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. Why is it that certain plays or books or films are preserved or re-performed or written about or talked about more or less continually throughout time and others just bite the dust? The Oresteia seems to have been a very successful play in antiquity. It was often quoted, it was parodied by Aristophanes and it was talked about by many other people. It was continually transmitted. We don't really know what the difference was between the Oresteia and another Aeschylus' play, let's say, the Psychostasia. <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of it. It's lost. Now, the Psychostasia was also a big hit. It was parodied by Aristophanes. It was talked about. It was quoted, etc., etc. So in a sense, at least within antiquity, the two plays are very closely parallel. But when we look at our modern age, who's heard of the Psychostasia? <laughs> of course, it's disappeared. There's no reason why we shouldn't know as much about the Psychostasia as the Oresteia, because in antiquity, it was equally important. The Psychostasia was a very famous and striking play. Nobody quite knows at what point it disappeared. It's a bizarre mystery. I'm fascinated by these questions, and it seems that they apply not just to the ancient world. They're questions that all of us have to ask, really, about you know, how, do we, how do we treat our cultural heritage? How do we treat our past? How do we create a canon, as it were? Today on The Mirror of Antiquity, Matthew Wright talks about his work on the fragments of ancient Greek tragedy. That is, on the plays that we know were performed in antiquity, sometimes to great acclaim, but which we can no longer read because their texts haven't survived except for a few lines quoted somewhere by someone, like the student who quoted Socrates in her tattoo. In the modern world, we have the problem of preserving too many texts, too much information, thousands of emails in our inboxes, So many digital photographs we have to keep buying new hard drives or space in the cloud. More online articles than we could ever hope to read. But before printing was invented, and certainly before the digital age, most texts, images, even buildings were doomed to be lost because they only existed in a few handwritten copies, because they were made of materials that could rot, fade, or crumble away, or because no one cared enough to preserve them by making new copies, which were laborious to make because it had to be done by hand. We can still read the Oresteia, three plays by the playwright Aeschylus, originally performed in 458 BCE, that describe the murder of Agamemnon by his wife as he returned from the Trojan War, the revenge his son Orestes took on his mother, and the trial that acquitted Orestes of that guilt. These are some of the most celebrated works of world literature. 
but no one will ever be able to read Aeschylus's Psychostasia. All that survives from that play are three words quoted by ancient scholars who were compiling dictionaries. Blunt, speed-walking, and sheepskin. That's it. Out of hundreds of lines of dialogue, in a play by an author often regarded as the greatest produced by Athens, only three words have survived. Because even the famous playwright's works have almost been erased from history. Aeschylus, for example, wrote around 100 plays, but only seven have survived. Of the other 90 or so, only a few lines from each survive, if we're lucky. For some, we only know the title. And no one will be able to read hundreds, if not thousands, of other plays by other authors that were written and performed in Athens in the 5th and 4th centuries, but which disappeared somewhere between their performance and modern times. Greek tragedy, my area, there's an awful lot of fragmentary material, and it exists in pretty good scholarly editions. The standard modern edition of Greek tragic remains. The fragments is Tragicorum Graecorum Fragmenta, um, it's not a household name, that book. If you try and get hold of it, you can order it on Amazon. It costs something like $300, $400 for a single volume. You get the volume if you can afford it, and if you open it, the introduction is written in Latin. The fragments themselves so are in the original Greek with a Latin apparatus at the bottom of the page to help you understand them. There's no way a, a general reader can approach this stuff. You wouldn't know what you were dealing with, so it's out there, but the audience for it is so tiny. And I think that's why general readers and students just don't know about this stuff as well as they ought to. It's, it's in this very paradoxical position of being publicly available in print, but somehow completely inaccessible. Probably no one can restore the vast amount of material that has been lost. But Matthew, who is professor of Greek at the University of Exeter, is working to give us easier access to the fragments that do survive in his new book, The Lost Plays of Greek Tragedy. He's translating into English not only the fragments of plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the best-known three playwrights of antiquity, and the authors of the 32 complete plays that have survived, but he is also translating the fragments of plays by authors that hardly anyone, even professional scholars of classics, have heard of, let alone read. Names like Phrynichus, Theodectes, Astydamus, Neophron, Carcinus. It can all seem tremendously arcane to pay so much attention to what has been lost, or almost lost, when we have plenty of wonderful texts from ancient Greece to read. But these fragments are, in their own way, essential to our understanding of the past, because they remind us of how limited a view of the ancient world our surviving evidence gives us, of how much we just don't know, and will probably never know, about that world. And this realization can, in turn, prompt us to reflect on our own culture today. In what sense is it complete? In what sense is it fragmentary? Is it being preserved? What has been lost from our recent past that we might wish we had later? What is being lost even as we speak without our even knowing it? And do we care? Because it may seem like we live in a world totally different from that of ancient Greece, that we live in a world where everything can be saved for later. But you don't have to look very far to discover the fragmentary nature of so much that we take for granted, and to realize that decisions are being made 
that can lead to cultural losses that are not much different from those suffered in the history of ancient literature. Welcome. Whenever I buy a film on DVD or rent a film, I always end up watching the bonus features first. I like the deleted scenes. I like to see what was left out on the cutting room floor. And I've never been able to say exactly why. I like that, but somehow there's a fascination in seeing all those bits. You get to know more detail, more detail about the characters or what led up to the characters in the film that was finished. You know, what, were the, what was their story? What happened to them? Um, because... What you see in the film often makes much more sense if you know what led up to it. Often you th- see things from new angles. One of one of the most interesting films in this respect is Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall. And it's impossible to see deleted scenes from this because Woody Allen doesn't allow it, or his producers don't allow it. But the original version of Annie Hall incorporated uh, a murder mystery as well as the other elements that we now no. Now, that film is very well known. It's based around a central love affair between Woody Allen's character and Diane Keaton's character. Um, it seems to hang together very well as a, as a, uh, as a structure, as a romantic storyline. But it appears that that was only one among many strands to the film originally. They had to do a lot of work in the cutting room to make that structure. And they cut it down from a much, much longer film, which was basically a whodunit that's fascinating to me. But I still clearly am fantasising about being able to watch this stuff. What does that say about me or the material? I just don't know. But the fact that you can read about this stuff in published material in Sight and Sound magazine or in film studies books shows that I'm not the only one who has these thoughts. So maybe that maybe there is something of that in the study of lost plays as well, if you really want to understand Aeschylus. You really have to understand all this stuff, not just the seven plays that everyone knows. You have to look at the other stuff as well. If you try to understand an entire genre on the basis of a tiny, tiny little fraction of what once there was of it, you're not going to be able to do it. In tragedy, I think, people have always talked about the whole genre on the basis of what survives, and the fragments have always just been a footnote, if they're mentioned at all. That seems very strange to me. And whether you call that peripheral, whether you treat it as footnotes to the main interest, or whether you see it as as equally interesting to all the surviving stuff is sort of a matter of personal taste, I think. But you do, you do have to do it, I think, to get a full picture. This isn't just a problem in the study of ancient Greek tragedy. It's a problem with the study of any aspect of ancient literature. Everything that survives for us to read existed originally alongside large numbers of works that are fragmentary, or more often lost, except for their names and the names of the people who wrote them. To say nothing of the works which have been completely lost, those which we don't even know existed. Many scholars are more comfortable presenting ancient literature as a cohesive body of so-called great literature. But what we usually teach is really just a tiny slice of what ancient Greeks and Romans read, thought about, imitated, parodied, or enjoyed? Most people in the world, most people who study classics, um, think that we have a pretty good idea of what classics is. And 
there are so many thousands of people who study classics in universities, especially. And you know, the, there are set books that one always reads. There are certain things that one is always taught about Greek and Roman literature and the world that produced this literature. And it nearly always feels as if one knows that world pretty well. And that if one studies classical literature, one somehow is studying all of it. And what was never pointed out to me enough as a student was that almost none of it survived. So what we think of as the corpus of ancient literature, the body of ancient literature, all the stuff that we read and know about, Euripides or Herodotus or Cicero, Livy, all the rest of it, um, it's only a tiny corner of what there was out there. And I think it's very difficult to, to go into statistical detail to talk about percentages, um, but it seems to me when you when you know anything at all about the stuff that doesn't survive, you immediately become aware that what doesn't survive is massively um, more, much, much more than the stuff that does survive. So to study surviving classical literature doesn't give you a sense of classical literature, how it was. It gives you a tiny corner, a tiny glimpse into this world, which is basically a lost world. Um, and that is really fascinating to me. It's something which I've discovered for myself as a researcher, as a scholar in classics. Um, but it's something that was never particularly clear to me as a student reading classics at a high school or a university. I thought that the syllabus I was covering was classical literature, but that that isn't true. So it's easy to be deceived into thinking that the 32 plays that we have are somehow more important or more representative than all the many, many hundreds of other ones. But I think that's just not true. The 32 plays Matthew mentioned are the tragedies by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides that have survived more or less complete for us to read in modern times. Some of these plays are extremely well-known and available in many, many translations. Aeschylus' Oresteia, Sophocles' Oedipus and Antigone, Euripides' Medea and Bacchae. Others are less familiar and less frequently performed, but all of them are available in translations in many modern languages, as well as in relatively easy-to-get editions of ancient Greek texts for those who want to read the original. Inevitably, these plays that are familiar and available have come to define our idea of what tragedy is, an idea which matters not just for how we think about ancient drama, but which affects how we categorize all kinds of stories, not just on stage, but in novels, on television, in film, and even in our own lives. But when you look at the fragments, what we call tragedy seems to mean something pretty different from what an ancient audience must have thought it meant. I think most people, whether they're classical scholars or just general theatre-goers, have a pretty good idea of what the tragic is or what tragedy is. They think it is plays a bit like Euripides' Medea, which are based on very strong but very tormented, very conflicted characters who do terrible things to one another. They probably kill some of their family members. They might commit suicide or threaten to. There might be incest involved. There's probably a sad or downbeat ending where many or all of the characters are dead 
by the end, something like that. And it's maybe there's a, a very bleak view of humanity involved, a tragic view of life. People use the word tragedy in this sort of sense. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong, perhaps, with that view of tragedy, but it is based on a very small sample of material. It's not even based on the 32 surviving tragedies. It's based on maybe a handful of them, the more famous ones that people perform a lot, like Medea, like the Oresteia, like Oedipus the King, like Ajax, and so on. You know, they are the, the, the very bleak, the very tragic, if you like, plays. Our view of what is tragic is based on this sample. Even within the surviving plays, there are plays which don't look as conventionally tragic as the other ones, such as Euripides' Helen, which is um, all about Helen of Troy, who mysteriously finds herself in Egypt and is reunited with Menelaus, her husband, and they live happily ever after. Now, most people would think and have thought over the years that that wasn't a proper tragedy, but it was. It was one of the 32 that survive. Um, so I think tragedy becomes more diverse, more complex, more difficult to pin down to a single type of play or a single meaning the more plays you look at. Even if you look at all the 32 surviving plays, you'll find that your view of tragedy expands and becomes much more um, heterogeneous, much more diverse. Some plays are different from others and they don't have to have a sad ending. They don't have to be about the bleakest possible vision of life. They don't have to have a pile of bodies on the stage. They don't have to have suicide and murder or incest. If you look at the lost plays, what happens is that you just get an even greater sense of variety. There are plays which aren't based in the world of myth. For example, Agathon wrote uh, a play where he just completely made up the plot and the characters. It wasn't based on Greek myths at all. Phrynichus wrote plays which were based on real-life historical events. And of course, we have Aeschylus's Persians, that is our sole surviving example of a real-life historical tragedy. But there were various others too. Phrynichus wrote them. Theodectes wrote them. Diogenes seems to have written them. Um, Dionysius of Syracuse even wrote an autobiographical tragedy where he was the main character. Again, many people looking at that think either that can't be true or no, there's something wrong with that story or it's not a proper tragedy then. <laughs> but it was. It was. It was included in what the Greeks were happy to call tragedy. The genre was far more diverse. Um, there, were, there were examples of many different types of plot patterns, lots more magical plots, um, such as Aeschylus's play Glaucus, uh, the sea god, who eats a magical herb and turns into a marine creature. Or there were love stories, such as Euripides' Andromeda, where Perseus comes to rescue Andromeda from a sea monster and then marries her and they live happily ever after. It's a very varied sort of genre. We can also look at the characters that we think we know pretty well from surviving tragedy, like, say, Medea. Everyone who's interested in Greek tragedy has seen or read Euripides' Medea, and they think that this character is basically the character of Medea, that the woman who appears in that play was how the Greeks saw Medea, um, she is an interestingly conflicted character who kills her children. Um, and yet, if you look at the remains of Lost Tragedy, you find, I would say, about 20 other plays about Medea, all of which present her in a slightly different way and quite differently from Euripides' play. In some of those versions, in fact, she didn't kill the children, as in Carcinus' play, Medea. So what you'd think of as a very central element of her character or her myth just doesn't happen. And 
that's something that appeared in a lost play. In other plays, um, such as Sophocles' Root Cutters, Medea was much more witch-like. We see her boiling up potions and cackling spells and things. Again, it's a very, very different Medea from the one that we see in Euripides' play. And you, you could go through a whole list of tragic characters like that. The, the version that we have from the surviving plays comes to seem like the myth of Medea. But it's not at all. It's just one among many versions of how this myth was presented. So I think always when we look at the lost plays, we get a sense that things were much more varied, much more complex, much more interesting than we, than we imagined them to be. Matthew's new book includes translations of all the fragments of Greek tragedy into English. Translations of the fragments of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides have been available in more specialized publications for some time, but the fragments of the other playwrights, Phrynichus, Carcinus, Agathon, have never been translated into English before. Which means that even though they were available, they were as good as lost to all of us, except the few who know ancient Greek well enough and have some incentive to study them. It can be tremendously exciting to see what you find in these fragments. They can open up whole new dimensions on something we thought we knew, a genre, a character, a myth. It's like watching the deleted scenes from a film you've loved for thousands of years. But ultimately, there's so little preserved. For Cursinus's play in which Medea does not murder her children, we can only read Aristotle's two-sentence summary, and not even a single line of dialogue. The fragments bring us face to face with how much has been lost, which can be painful when the little we find makes us want to know more. Sometimes I do feel depressed. I look at the works of an author like Agathon. Agathon is my favourite lost Greek tragic author, I think, and he gets a whole chapter to himself in the book. He's the only playwright who does, even though only 34 fragments of his work survive. And I think if only we had just a continual page of his plays, or maybe three pages from one of his tragedies, enough for us to get a real sense of how it was. But we don't, and the longest fragment is something like five lines, I think. So he's not particularly well-preserved, but for some reason we know an awful lot about him because lots of people talked about him. He was clearly a very famous guy. People liked or disliked his works quite strongly, uh, and they talked about them. Some of them quoted his famous lines. Aristophanes parodied his work um, and even included him as a character in his play Thesmophoria's Usai, Women at the Thesmophoria Festival. And the way he talks about him makes it clear that he was an extraordinary man. I read the way that Aristophanes makes him talk and behave, and I'm reminded a lot of Oscar Wilde. He's a very flamboyant character. He's very flamboyantly camp, um, and the way that he's presented is quite funny, but um, may represent something of the real life. Agathon, he talks in a very strange, very elegant, epigrammatic way. Um, he, he comes across as a really memorable character in Aristophanes' play. If you look at the actual quotations that survive the fragments, um, again, you get this sense of a very weird way of writing Greek, a very extraordinary way of expressing yourself, very elegant, very pithy, quite paradoxical statements. It's very hard to translate Agathon into English, which I've tried to do in this book, but you can't really get the elegance or the jokes or the puns or the wordplay across in English very easily. Uh, but in Greek, um, it's very marked. Um, it's difficult to see 
exactly how serious Agathon was meant to be. And again, that reminds me a lot of Oscar Wilde. There's a great sense of paradox and of wit and of brilliance, which to some people just seems rather annoying. Um, and scholars, even though we're only dealing with fragments, you get lots of disparaging references to him. But I think he's brilliant. I think he, um, of all the, the lost writers, he's the one that I would have liked to, to be able to read. Lots of Agathon's lines seem to have been written deliberately in order to be quoted, and they're, they're almost like maxims or aphorisms, and this is one of them, which in Greek is tis eikos auto legoi, brotoisi polla uk eikota. Now, in English, I've translated that as perhaps one might say that this very thing is probable, that many improbable things happen to mortals. It doesn't sound so brilliant in my translation, um, but I was trying to give a sense of the literal meaning of the Greek. But basically what he's saying is very paradoxical, that many improbable things happen, but that's probable. Isn't it probable that many improbable things happen? Just the way that the Greek is put together, it's so neat. The, the sense of paradox perhaps is, is the neatest thing about it. A better illustration comes from another example which I'll read out. Uh, and you can hear that the Greek um, sort of uses the same words but rearranged and there's an internal rhyme there um, and it's very symmetrical in the Greek it's this again is a hard line to translate and in English that means art likes fortune and fortune likes art um, but what does it actually mean art likes fortune and fortune likes art it's hard to tell whether that's banal or meaningless or whether it's very profound. Is it saying that to all artistic enterprise there's an element of accident or fortune? Is he talking about artistic inspiration? Is he talking about the, the balance between deliberate effort and some other force when you're trying to do things? Or is he just trying to be funny and having a, you know, a, a nicely quotable but basically meaningless line? It's really hard to say. And I think the big problem with any of this stuff is that because he wrote these lines as quotable maxims, people have quoted them, but they haven't quoted any of the other bits. We don't know how these maxims fitted within a scene. We don't know who said them or what effect they were trying to create. You know, were they like Oscar Wilde's characters who put these sound bites in everywhere, every single line? That would be quite annoying perhaps after a time. Or were they presented in the course of serious arguments? Were they trying to make a point? How were they deployed? We can't really know about that, but I'd like to know more. I've already mentioned his play, um, which we think was called Antheus, or it might have been called Anthos. We don't quite know. Even the title is a fragment. But um, this, this is the play that was completely made up. Um, it wasn't based on myth. It was just a, a fiction. But he wrote various other plays, um, such as um, plays about Iropi and Thyestes. So there's lots of incest and cannibalism in these plays. Um, um, he, he was famous for having tried to squeeze a whole epic into a tragedy, and that, to me, implies either a very condensed play or a very, very long play. We don't quite know which it was. He was interesting because he did strange things with the chorus. He was one of the, the, the first playwrights, it's said, to have incidental music rather than um, fully integrated choral odes in the plays. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things about him. You get the sense that this is a, 
a fantastic writer, but you can't quite get close enough to him. And I find that depressing sometimes. But at the, on, the, on other days, I, I think this is, this is just so fascinating. It's like doing detective work. You're going through the remains of this fascinating material. You're bringing new things to light. You're trying to say things about it. You're trying to reconstruct what you've lost. So it's not always depressing, but it, I think you can see it in different ways, depending on you know, what, what you happen to be doing at, at, at the time. Maybe it's too much to ask that everything we might be interested in reading survive for thousands of years. Maybe we just have to accept that the passage of time is going to erase some valuable things. But we don't have to go back thousands of years to discover losses every bit as grievous as the loss of Agathon's plays. There are quite a lot of lost film festivals at the moment. Even from the comparatively recent world, films can get lost. That's quite surprising, I think, to most people. And we're talking about living memory for, for many people. I know that the British Film Institute did one and there was a Bradford Film Festival a year or two ago and these events are are dedicated solely to lost films and they've included things like, well, one of them was about British films from the early years of cinema. Um, We have a lot of information about these films, lots of still photography, the scripts, production um, information, but the film reels themselves have mysteriously vanished. So... You can look at the evidence you have left, or there are clips from films. Um, Sometimes it's unfinished films. I think there was an event I read about which was Orson Welles-related, and of course Orson Welles' films notoriously were so messed about with by the studios, and they existed in lots of different versions. There was so much footage which was cut from them and never released, which has turned up. Um, people are in a position to show the lost reels of famous films like The Magnificent Ambersons um, or to, to produce different versions from the versions that everyone knows. I've even been at an event where I've seen reels from the final film that Marilyn Monroe was making when she died in the middle of shooting. So the film was never released. It's, it's an unfinished lost film, but many parts of it exist and one can watch them. In the film world, there's all sorts of different materials like that, and it covers a quite big spectrum. You can look at all sorts of paraphernalia from films or modern theatre, the programmes, the programme notes, film reviews in the, in the media, um, any sort of quotation or description from a play in any context whatsoever. I mean, all of these sorts of things exist um, in both contexts. It would be wonderful to have photographic stills from the ancient theatre, even if we just had one, or if we just had one corner of a photograph, that could tell us so much. The nearest thing, I think, for some scholars, is vase paintings from the late 5th or the 4th century BC, so they're fairly close in time to the plays that they commemorate. And lots of scholars look at Greek vase painting and they think, well, there's a lot of features on these paintings that look like Greek myths or that seem to be visual narratives or that relate to literature or maybe that relate to drama in some way. For example, there are quite a lot of vase paintings of the character Medea and in some of them she's depicted um, with the bodies of her sons whom she's killed or in some of them she's depicted in a chariot drawn by snakes. And you look at those images and you think, oh, well, they're pretty obviously pictures of Medea. 
from mythology, but many scholars would go further than that and say these are pictures which reflect ancient drama, and these are vast paintings which were painted by people who had seen productions of the plays and then went and depicted them. Now, obviously, Medea is a play that survives, so you can do comparisons between the art and the drama and see where see where they match or don't match. Um, there are lots of vast paintings that have been taken to depict lost plays, and I think for, for many years, scholars were quite keen to see them as almost like photographic stills. So they would see a vase depicting, let's say, Euripides' Andromeda, a lost tragedy. There were lots of vase paintings where Andromeda is depicted. The pose, the costume, the general look of those paintings looks a bit like the other vase paintings, which are clearly inspired by tragedy. So scholars took those images, in effect, as photographic stills from lost plays. And it was very exciting to think that one could actually visualise these moments on stage. If you're the sort of imaginative fantasist who who likes to look at the pictures and think, ah, yes, if I half close my eyes, it's like being at a production of Andromeda in 412 BC. Nevertheless, I think you do have to be realistic. Of course, this was over-optimistic, and most scholars now would, would not want to call those images illustrations. Much more recently, the British scholar Oliver Taplin wrote a book called Pots and Plays, and he talked in terms of interactions between vast paintings and drama to say that the, the vast painters were inspired in some way by drama. And I think that is a much more judicious way of looking at it. Of course, in the modern world, we just know so much more context. We can make sense of the things which are quoted or the bits in the, the bits of information that we have because we just we can place them within the world that we still live in. Whereas in the ancient world, we have to interpret not just the quotations, but the surrounding material, the context as well. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine how, how material can just get lost. Why does nobody make attempts to preserve it? You know, what has happened to it? What are the processes by which films, or in fact any material, were either preserved or lost? What has happened to these works? Whether you're talking about modern films or ancient plays, it's more or less the same types of process and the same questions. One of the types of explanation which is given, I think it's wrong, is based on quality. The Oresteia survived because it's a brilliant, timeless classic of high artistic quality and genius. That is true. Nobody wants to deny that the Oresteia is a good play, a good trilogy. It's a brilliant work of art. But I think the same was probably true of the, of the lost works. And if you look at the plays which survive in comparison with the, the, the plays that didn't survive, it's very hard, it's impossible, I think, really, to say that the surviving plays were better than the lost ones. If you look at an author like Neophron, nobody's ever heard of Neophron, but he was, in his day, perfectly successful, it seems. He was very prolific. He's said to have written more than 100 plays. Now, none of Neophron's works survived, but most modern scholars would say, well, that's because he was no good. <laughs> The judgment of posterity decided that Neophron was not a classic author. For most of the history of the discipline, scholars have written about the lost works as if they were minor. 
So they're not just lost tragedians, they're minor tragedians, they're lesser talents, they're not really of mainstream interest anyway, they're to be treated as peripheral, they're footnotes to the main story. But I think my personal view is that the survival or loss of Greek tragedy was more or less a matter of accident. As far as I can see, there was no qualitative difference between, say, the plays of Aeschylus, or the plays of Astydamus, or the plays of Euripides, or the plays of Phrynichus. But um, why should we have completely lost the one and not the other? It's a mystery to me, and I don't think there was any quality control involved. It is a mystery. Because if it was a matter of quality, if everyone recognized that Aeschylus and Euripides were so great and so worthy of preservation, why did so few of their plays survive? If you take the plays of Euripides, again, Euripides is a classic playwright within antiquity. In the fourth century, he seems to be the most popular playwright. His plays are very often reperformed. He's made into one of the official state poets. All of his plays are preserved in official state texts. There's no reason you'd think why his plays wouldn't have survived. They were continually talked about and quoted. They were known until quite late on in antiquity. But again, if you look at what survived to us, out of more than 100, only 18 plays survive. Now, why should that be? It's partly a mystery. In this particular case, though, some of the plays that survived clearly survived as an accident. They all begin with the same letter of the alphabet, such as Helen or Iphigenia in Aulis, Iphigenia among the Taurians, Ion and so on. They all begin with H or I in, in the Roman alphabet. And they seem to have survived completely by accident as one volume of an alphabetical edition that used to have all of the plays in, but just one volume survived. The other plays, the non-alphabetic plays that survive, are plays like the Medea, the Orestes, the Alcestis, and so on. It does seem that they survived as part of a selected edition that was made maybe for schools or for educational use. That was the selected edition. So maybe they were chosen for some sort of perceived quality or educational use. But that's an unusual case. And again, even in the case of a classic author, you have this weird mixture of deliberate choices and accidents combined with still quite a lot of mystery. Why didn't all of the plays survive? If you just take a writer like Aeschylus, Aeschylus was a classic as early as the 4th century BC. He, he obviously was seen as a great playwright. The Athenian statesman Lycurgus, late in the 4th century, decided that his plays would be preserved in the state treasury for all of time and so on. He, he was clearly seen as an important writer. So why should it be that his plays, I think he wrote nearly 100 plays, have come down to us as seven plays. Why should only seven survive? Nobody knows. It's simply a mystery. Lycurgus thought Aeschylus's plays were worth preserving, but clearly his interest in them wasn't enough because they're almost all gone. Even having the most powerful man in Athens preserve your plays in the state treasury is not enough to save them. And what about the rest of the citizens? We don't really know what ancient audiences valued. We don't know whether they thought the texts of plays ought to be preserved, or whether they thought of drama as an art form that you witness in person, and then it's gone. It's a strange idea that the original audience didn't care to preserve these plays that we celebrate, that we admire, that we study. But this mismatch between our sense of value 
and that of previous generations can be found inside our own culture as well. I think if you look at the modern world, say the world of film or television, the reason why many works weren't preserved was because they were thought to be low-value commodities. They were thought to be ephemeral, not particularly valuable, not high-cultural artefacts, not worthy of preservation. You see that certainly with many early cinema films. They're short, experimental films. They never had a very wide audience anyway. They were seen as very ephemeral products. Certainly that's true of television as well. There are many lost television programmes which now would be fascinating to the cultural historian, but the tapes were wiped every week. The television companies just didn't ever think it was part of their mission to preserve this ephemeral stuff which was here today, gone tomorrow. So that's interesting because we know that about modern culture. If we try and draw a parallel between that sort of thing and the ancient world, then we have to ask questions like how important really was tragedy to the 5th century Athenians. This actually is quite a problem in scholarship because we don't, because we don't know these central facts. We can't really talk with any great confidence about things like cultural memory or the processes of preservation. We don't really know quite how the plays that survive, the famous plays like Euripides, Medea, Aeschylus, Oresteia and so on, came to us. We don't quite know the whole process between their first production nearly two and a half millennia ago and their survival now in millions of modern copies. Lots of scholars like to think of 5th century Athens as a performance culture, um, which, which means that there's an awful lot of stress placed on the precise moment of performance. And that means that maybe there was a lot of emphasis on that one moment, that one particular moment in time. But then after that, maybe the plays weren't preserved so much. The problem is that we don't really have enough evidence about day-to-day conditions in Athens to know whether that model is true. It may be that plays were treated much as we treat plays now, that many people in the audience would have been able to buy a text of the plays Um, if they could afford it or if they could read it. There are lots of references, in fact, in ancient texts to books, lots of casual throwaway references, which to me seem to imply that book readership was perfectly common. There's a famous line in one of Aristophanes' plays, The Frogs, where it's said that everyone in the audience has a book, and most people take that as a reference to the scripts of the plays, as if that was a perfectly normal thing for somebody to have access to. So I think, to me at least, Ancient Athens was a book-reading culture, and if you think that that's true, that leads you to a very different impression of cultural heritage, of preservation of plays, because if plays were just put on once and forgotten about, that's a very different scenario from plays being put on and circulated as scripts and remembered for long afterwards. So if the Athenians only valued performance, then the plays were like early television shows. No one really cared if they lasted beyond the original airing. This makes it unsurprising that only a few plays would survive. But if Matthew is right, that scripts circulated in antiquity and that there were copies of plays around, then it is surprising that so few made it down to us. Surprising, that is, until we remember just how many ways there are to destroy a book or a play or even something as monumental as a building. 
Sometimes this destruction shocks the world. Matthew and I were talking in the spring of 2017 as news reports were coming in from Syria of ISIS destroying ancient structures in Palmyra. But the changing of fashions and just simple neglect can be every bit as devastating as well. You can look around the modern world and see difficult choices everywhere. You can see it in the way that architecture, for example, is either preserved or ruined. You can see it in, you know, in cities and towns everywhere. But of course, fashions change a lot, and what seems to one age to be terrible architecture um, often is revalued 50 or 100 years later and turns out to be brilliant architecture, if only we'd preserved it. In Britain, this was um, the case with Victorian architecture, It was very, very unfashionable for much of the 20th century. Many notable Victorian buildings, especially in city centres, were demolished and replaced with modernist structures of one sort or another. Um, And this is now seen very widely as a terrible mistake and a blight on townscapes. And if only we'd preserved that heritage. Many books are published by English Heritage or similar organisations with titles like Britain's Lost Towns, Lost London... And you look at the pictures, which make you weep with how much beauty was randomly, well, not randomly, wantonly, I think, destroyed because of tastes, because of, because of fashion. I mean, this, this is something which, in a sense, is inevitable because fashions do change. Life isn't static. But, you know, if you look in Syria or in other countries in the Middle East, you know, where wars are happening, there are ancient structures which have been lovingly preserved for for many centuries, which are even now being destroyed. And there's a terrible sense that, well, of course, there's so much else going on in these regions. To focus on the architecture and the classical heritage may be seen as irrelevant or somehow heartless, but it's just one aspect of a, a very, very dangerous and difficult situation. You know, in, in, every, in every city in the world, whatever its context, there's always a mixture of preservation and loss. There's an awful lot of controversy. Every decade or every 20 or 30 years, these decisions are revisited, sometimes with regret. But of course, it's too late when the buildings have already gone. How sure are we that we're right about what's valuable and what's not? And since it's so much easier to destroy than to create, are we sufficiently conscious of the choices we're making that lead to the loss or preservation of our culture? Everyone who studies classics in a university, at least, reads Euripides' Medea or Thucydides, and again, these key texts. How long will that really be true? How many people in the world outside the university go and read, you know, Thucydides for pleasure? How long can one rely on these things? I think we're often in a position of having to defend ourselves in a world which increasingly devalues humanity's education. Governments across the world are questioning the value of humanities education and research and you know especially in in Britain where I work it's becoming more and more difficult to study or to research in not just ancient literature but humanities in general one is forced all the time to to defend oneself as if somehow studying the ancient world was irrelevant or as if it was somehow an aristocratic leisure activity rather than something that was really vital for people to do. When I think about preservation of, of culture and heritage, I, I do think of my own academic subject, 
really, um, because it does. It seems possible that these things will dwindle. How many people in the world know Latin and Greek today? Will there still be the same number in another 20 years, or in 50 years, or in 100 years? I think if you look at almost any literature written in the 19th or early 20th century, you can see that there's a full range of cultural reference points which used to be taken for granted. Writers routinely would quote Latin and Greek text, either translated or untranslated, and expect their readers to know basically what was being talked about, maybe just in the same way that they would quote the Bible and expect their readers to understand. Now, we know that this is no longer the case. If I were to write a novel tomorrow and quote untranslated lines from Virgil in it, the publisher would make me translate them. The readers wouldn't understand the lines. If you were to give a lecture to your students tomorrow and quote long passages from the Gospels, it's likely that most students wouldn't get those references either, and that's already happening. Um, So it's not too far from that situation to imagine a world where almost nobody knows ancient texts at all a world in which nobody can read Thucydides in Greek anymore, or perhaps one or two eccentric people hidden away in Oxford colleges. I think you can imagine a world where, even if the books are obtainable somehow, in English translations, nobody would bother reading them because they wouldn't know about them. They wouldn't realise their worth or interest. I think that's fairly easy to imagine, even though it might seem apocalyptic. So, you know, throughout the history of the discipline, we've often been concerned with preserving the past, preserving the classics, but our discipline itself is in need of preservation. Matthew isn't inviting us to fall into the trap, however, of thinking that the reason you used to be able to assume your audience knew Latin and the Bible was because Latin literature and the Bible are the highest quality literature, and that standards today have just fallen so far and need to be shored up. That's the same trap as assuming that the Oresteia survived and Neophron's plays didn't because the Oresteia was so much better. It's pretty clear that the reason educated people in the past knew Latin is because exclusive educational institutions required you to know those texts. A knowledge of Latin could serve as a gatekeeper to limit access to that education. As higher education democratized, Latin was no longer required, and as a result, there are plenty of educated people who don't know Latin. It's probably a good thing for society overall if knowing Latin isn't required to gain the benefits of a college degree. Instead, what Matthew is reminding us is simply that aspects of a culture can be lost as easily today as in the past, and that the priorities we set, or don't set, can make things disappear, whether it's Victorian architecture a television sitcom, or classical literature. Nothing is immune, no matter how much it was valued in the past. The most significant library of the ancient Greco-Roman world, in Alexandria, Egypt, burned several times and declined amid centuries of political and cultural changes. Supposedly, there were 10,000 lines of the poet Sappho in that library. Now we have only one complete poem and a few fragments. By the time of the introduction of printing in Europe in the 15th century, there was only one copy left of some ancient Greek and Latin texts. It was that close. It may be that close again someday. Don't mock the student with the tattoo. She's doing her part. There's an element of me which looks at 
events like the destruction of the library at Alexandria, say, and think, oh, if only that hadn't happened, then what might have followed on from that? Um, or you know, many other failures to preserve literature. Um, you know, why, why, why didn't somebody invent the printing press earlier? Why didn't somebody make just a few more copies of um, Ovid's Medea or you know, these wonderful texts? Um, but then at the same time, you have to be grateful that anything survives at all, don't you? I mean, it's such a long time ago that in a way it's a miracle that we have complete surviving texts. Maybe we could easily have been faced with a scenario where all of our classical texts were fragmentary. And if you look at other comparably ancient contexts, like ancient Egypt, you know, the, the, the number of texts that survive is so much smaller compared with what we've got that we have to count ourselves quite lucky. This kind of gratitude is profoundly different from a lament that no one values the classics anymore because it opens up the possibility of a new way of seeing these texts. If the time when the most educated and powerful people in the world knew Latin and Greek has passed, then maybe it's time to stop thinking of classical literature as the best or the most significant literature. It hasn't been that for a long time, and new approaches are needed. Maybe it's time for a little humility about the ancient world, starting with a recognition of how much has already, has always been lost. Look at it that way. Who knows what we might find? Most people who are interested in the ancient world would like to present it as somehow knowable because it's quite depressing if you acknowledge the degree of unknowability. If, if you're a scholar of, well, Greek tragedy, say, um, to, to, to think that you can study 32 complete plays is, is quite a good thing to think. To realise that there are hundreds of other plays that you don't know about properly is is more depressing and it, it's true of the ancient world in general if you're an ancient historian if you're interested in you know fifth century greek history politics warfare anything like that of course you want to create the illusion in your own mind that you know this stuff well and can talk about it intelligently to other people but the truth is that we know very little about it we have a few sources that people read again and again and we treat those sources uh, as, as privileged um, evidence, but there's so much that we don't know. I mean, being an antiquarian in general is is really wanting to catalogue everything, to know everything, to preserve everything, to feel that one has somehow got a handle of, got a control of this material, and that is an illusion, really. Um, and to admit that is maybe disempowering to a certain mindset. On the other hand, you could say that many classicists and ancient historians are interested in the ancient world precisely because it's lost, it's evanescent, it's not quite graspable. And that's that's quite a potent thing for many people. And I've talked about this in the book to an extent, the, the way in which lost works have a very special sort of aesthetic, intellectual appeal for lots of different people, not everybody. I think there's a great imaginative potential in this material. Basically, working on fragments can, at times, be a, a branch of creative writing. Um, you, you have to use your imagination, and that means you have to generate questions. You have to use a far more interrogative mode, I think, 
Um, rather than stating things, you have to ask things, you have to pose lots of questions, you have to um, you have to speculate. Well, what if this were true? What would happen if this were true? What would what would it matter if it weren't true? What difference would it make if this idea was right or wrong? You have to be again very open-minded. You have to think about the potential rather than the actual meaning of the material. You have to work with hypotheses. You have to suggest things, even if you know that many of them, or even all of them, are not really true. We can't really know whether they were or not. You can't just you know, be a complete fantasist. But I think there's a great pleasure in using your imagination and combining imagination and scholarship. And that is a particular appeal of fragmentary literature. And I sometimes, if I'm writing things for publication, I wonder how much of that I should express openly anyway, because I know that many more sober, restrained scholars are not going to like that sort of approach. Um, I think for many people, you know, the idea that scholarship is basically a branch of fiction is 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 a troubling thing. But I, I don't get very troubled by it. Trying to emphasise the open-endedness of the study of fragments, or trying to emphasise the radical uncertainty of much of the stuff that's routinely talked about in the world of tragedy is really important because often people think they know things very well. I think it's valuable to remind ourselves how little we know, even if that's a rather negative sort of conclusion. That is a sort of truth, isn't it? It's much more valuable to realise that truth than to go through life thinking you know everything when you don't, in fact. The first volume of Matthew Wright's Lost Plays of Greek Tragedy, which includes never-before-translated fragments of many of the authors he discussed on the show, was published by Bloomsbury in 2016. The second volume, containing the fragments of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, will be out soon. I've included links to these and Matthew's other books on our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Lucy Rosenthal, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Our recording engineer is Baynard Bailey, and Emma Schulte designed our logo. Music on today's show by Antethic, Julie Maxwell, the Princess of Mars, and Marcel Peckel. Find us online at mirrorofantiquity.com and on social media at Mirror Antiquity. Thanks for listening.